Yeah, I wish I could sleep until 10. I should work for Mozilla. <laughs> <laughs> Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 82 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill, Aaron Frost. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and we have a special guest, and that's Anton Kovalyov. 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 Hello. <laughs> I tried. I even asked before the show, and I still blew it. <laughs> uh, so you want to introduce yourself, Anton? Yeah, so my name is Anton. I work at Mozilla on the Firefox web browser on developer tools, but I guess I'm most known for the Jessin project, which is a code quality tool for JavaScript. Um, that's why yeah, I live and work from San Francisco, cool. which is pretty cold right now. But so, do you work with any of the guys like Jason Orendorf or like? Um, Jason Orendorf is on the JavaScript engine team. Okay. I think. So we work with him when we need staff for developer tools from the platform. But I don't work with him day to day. Okay. Usually come to, uh, so twice a year, our team and any team at Mozilla, they have kind of like developer meetups, team meetups, because our teams are very distributed. So she, he usually comes to, she sometimes comes to, um, these meetups. So I see him there. Gotcha. Cool. That's cool. So how long have you been at Mozilla? Um, it's been a year. I think it's a year and like two months or something. So not so long ago. And I started there. Where were you before that? Before that, I spent almost four years at a company called Discuss, uh, which was a startup, but then, I mean, I guess it's still a startup. Discuss was doing, uh, embeddable comments. Yep. On the web. Yeah. yeah. So on sites like CNN and stuff. So that's yeah. what I was doing. Yes. Yeah, I, I was there, I think second or maybe third non-founding employee. And then we grew to 40 people and then I moved to Mozilla. Awesome. Yeah, that's cool. So how'd you get I'm, involved in JS Hint? Uh, I was drunk. And <laughs> <laughs> so I used to, I used to do the JavaScript pub night, which was like a meetup, except you skip all the talks and you just go with JavaScript people to, um, to a bar and you just socialize there. <laughs> and at some point there, I was complaining about JS Lint, I think to Paul Irish. And he suggested that I should fork it. And then the next day, I pinged him on IRC, and I kind of I said that I was going to fork it. And Paul Irish was very supportive, and he helped me to start the project. And this is how the project started. That's awesome. Yeah, it's mostly started out of frustration with JSLint. Like I didn't have any higher goals in mind. Like we used JSLint that uh, with discuss. Uh, discuss and then it was just impossible to use. So, so I know that you um, you have a blog post about explaining why you forked JS Lint to JS Hint. Can yeah. you explain a little bit about that, though? So basically, I personally believe that code quality tools are very important. And static analysis in general is very important in any software project because it 
helps you to kind of step back and look uh, at your project, at your source code from the distance to see where the problematic parts. And uh, with JavaScript, I think most people tend to debate uh, about the wrong thing, about how to align your white space or something. And that should be something you agree with your team and then you do it consistently. And there might be a, there, there has to be a tool. There is a market for a tool that will enforce that, but it should be configurable and it should be not extremely opinionated. While JSLint was moving from a really good lint tool at the time or two years ago, it was moving from the, a really good lint tool to let's all write code like Douglas Crawford. And at some point, I think the, he introduced, Douglas introduced a change where you had to move all your variables to the top. And that was my tipping point because that was just not good. He wanted um, you to manually hoist all your stuff and you were like, no, nah, I'm not hoisting my own variables. Well, pretty much. My, okay. I, I said that in a very uh, different way with a lot of swear words. But, <laughs> um, yeah, pretty much. So okay. then I forked and... Like recently, very recently, a few days ago, actually, I posted a blog post that um, JSON will be moving from, will be removing all the white space options that were there from JSLint that were complaining about you not putting white space between function keyword and open parentheses or something towards a more complicated and interesting analysis. And a few people actually sent me links to cool tools that do one thing and one thing only. They check your style and they, you can configure what style you want. And this is great because just it will not need to do everything in the world. It will do just things it can do well. And the white space, I will leave it to someone else. Hmm. Ultimately, you know, I, I think that uh, on the variable hoisting, I think once ECMAScript 6 gets here, you're right because there's no need to manually hoist your stuff anymore because there's actual, you know, block scope functions in ES6. So I think that I'm going to have to agree with you on that one. Yeah. Well, block, block scope will be only with, um, left keyboard. There's still <laughs> var is not going anywhere because we cannot remove var. Um, That's true. There, so it will be there. So the issue with the hoisting is there, but instead of forcing people to manually hoist their variables, you can just more intelligent intelligently detect when the hoisting can be a problem, like when you're trying to use a value variable before you assign or something, and warn about that. But not, but forcing everyone to just manually host and put their variables to the top is, um, it might be a solution with it. It might be a solution with good intention, but it's not a working solution because people will not, it's not will not change their code bases all of a sudden because some dude from eBay said that. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, good point. Yep. So what are some of the differences between JSLint and JSHint? What are or uh, what were? What are today? Yeah. JSHint right now has so many more checks and options for your JavaScript code that I don't even know, to be honest, what JSLint has. Let's see. So uh, JSLint has an option to accelerate stupidity. We don't have that because I don't know what stupidity is. But usually, uh, most obvious changes are we have, for example, um, code complexity metrics, where you can set your maximum allowed uh, code complexity, and JSON will warn if your function is too uh, nested 
or it has too many parameters or something. So JSON doesn't have that. Uh, recently, one of the contributors sent a patch, which is very good, where they mentioned that type of keyword can return only like a limited set of values. I think it's eight or something. And if you compare this type of some variable to some other value, some other string, that it, it is possibly a typo. So yeah, I merged that. And now, so now basically if you're do type of X equals to function and you made a type one function, JSON will warn about that. Um, but mostly the, the biggest difference will be that JSON has now way more options, way more checks, and it can be way looser than JSLIN, or it can be more strict than JSLIN. So it's up to the user to pick their, I guess, level of strictness, if you can say that. But I haven't actually looked at JSLIN for a while because there was no nothing interesting there. So maybe so, there are some cool things. So can JSLIN serve as like a drop-in replacement for JSLIN, or does um, it kind of break the break the the keys that you use to turn them on? Does it kind of break that? So uh, the short answer is yes. We have the special case for JSLint options in the code where some options are that have the same name, but they're inverted. Some options that have different names. So we try and we support most of the JSLint options, but uh, not all. Like I think, I don't remember, I think the option stupidity or something, it just covers so much. I decided not to spend time on this. So cool. for most cases, it can be used for uh, as a drop-in replacement, but not for everything. And I'm not sure, actually, if I'm going to keep it this way because it also complicates the source code. And I'm trying. So I'm now on the mission to simplify JSHint source code. Did cool. we talk about what JSHint and JSLint actually are for, for um, people who aren't? A little bit he did. We can yeah. talk about it. Oh, uh, yeah, I can explain. So... In his historical context, there was a, I mean, there still is, but there was a programming language called C. And the early versions of C, they were very, 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 not even insecure. Again, they were very dangerous in terms of you could very easily uh, make a mistake and corrupt your memory or do some other weird stuff. So then uh, someone, and I don't remember who, created a tool that was called Lint. And that tool basically read this source code written in C. And it had a number of patterns that were, that usually were associated with bugs and like problems in C code and it reported about them. So fast forward, what, 15 years or something? C is a, what is C99 is a much better language. No, but JavaScript on the other hand has a lot of food guns and a lot of weird things about it that are that makes sense historically, but when you work with them, they don't make sense at all. And so Douglas Crockford created a tool called JSLint, which was basically the same thing. It was scanning, it was parsing your source code, and it was looking at the potentially bad constructions in your code, and then it reported that. And JSLint, which was created two years ago, is a fork of that, And essentially, but essentially all these tools are the same. They parse your source code, and they try to detect potentially dangerous constructions in your code and try to warn them about that. So is it about the dangerous constructs, or it, it seems like a lot of these things are more like coding styles that... So that's what I'm trying to move from. <laughs> it's definitely right now, but just in that have a lot of coding style 
options and checks and warnings. So I'm trying to remove them from JSON because I think there should be a, a separate tool, not JSON. So yeah, my personal intention is to make JSON to warn about dangerous constructs and also to give more. So this is where we go. We like kind of separate from the original Lint program. I'm trying with JSON and like code complexity tool, uh, metrics and stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to also give data about your code that you can use while either writing your programs or with while uh, deciding what to refactor. For example, if you have a bunch of files and you can run the metrics on that and you can see that one file is like overly nested and the code complexity is uh, off the charts there, that's an easy target to refactor first and not refactor something that's been refactored 10 times before and it's actually quite good. Hmm. To kind of go further on that, um, Charles, it also does, uh, like it has un- unsafe checks for like for in or double equals versus triple equals or, you know, bad regular expressions. So, so it's not all just about the formatting, like team formatting options so that we all write uniform, but it also has like some unsafe stuff to keep you from doing some common pitfalls. So, yeah. Yeah. So people usually think that it's all about formatting because when just hint reports about a potential dangerous construction, like let's say you, ha- you made a typo in your typo or you like missed the semicolon before the token where you cannot miss the semicolon because of the, um, ACI, ASI, um, just will warn you and you're like, okay, that's cool. That's chill. So I, uh, you fix it and you're done. You're happy. But when JSON warns you about uh, formatting or something, people grab feature boards and go to the JSON website or go to like Twitter and start arguing about whether they should do comma first or some other stuff I don't really care about. And so basically those bugs are, the formatting are the minority of um, warnings, but they're more, people are more vocal about them because how you format your code is such a subjective issue. Everyone so, has their own opinion on that. Uh, here's here's my question. Like, I feel that generally having one right way to do something is better, right? So do you think that it would be better if the language had been designed arbitrarily with a particular way that it had to be, like Python, for example? Python, they picked the system, and they stuck with it, and it works. And you can't argue about it. You just have to do it. So do you Python, think- huh? Yeah, I actually absolutely agree about that. So I'm a big Go fan, and with Go, the Go ships with the tool uh, that is Go format, Go FMT, and when you run it, it just basically reformats your code with the one Go style, and that's it. So mm-hmm. I'm very, very supportive about that, but I also understand that in real world, we're writing JavaScript, and it's not going to happen with JavaScript. Another thing that uh, I actually saw, I don't remember... I think I was reading a blog post somewhere where the author suggested to create a programming language where the white space errors are actual errors. So like if you put a space between a function name and a parenthesis, it will be a syntax error. So That sounds excellent. So I actually like that idea. I mean, there is no language like this, but I like that idea. There, I know there are people like a good friend of mine, Jacob, who wrote Bootstrap. He will probably hate that because he likes to experiment <laughs> with JavaScript and he likes to like use it as an ex tool to of expression. And I understand his point. I will I don't really use that the same, 
way, but I understand this point. But if I were to pick a language that has only one true style and everyone stops arguing and just use that style, I would definitely go for for that. Hmm. So what do you feel about this whole idea that like code is art versus code is for the purpose of getting work done? So I don't treat my code as art, but I can, so I, for, for a long time, I was really, really, really against that. And I thought that was the whole code is art or like code is literature, whatever was really stupid. But then I, um, read Jacob's article, Jacob's chapter for the, um, the book we're working on. And it kind of changed my mind. So it's not that I'm, will be treating code as art, but I understand the point of people who treat it as such. So I guess I don't really have a strong opinion anymore. I like, whatever. If people are happy doing this, sure. But I mean, if I will have to, um, work with Jacob's code and he's, treating as an art and I cannot understand it, then probably I will change my mind back. <laughs> yeah, that's not good art. I'm, I'm kind of curious uh, on another point. Do you, so do you actually use um, some of the JavaScript parsing engines to pick out some of these problems or are you actually picking over the, the text, the characters themselves? Oh, um, JSON has its own parser and lexer and basically JSON uh, once you start lexing, even before it finished, the JSON goes over or lexems, and then when you start parsing, JSON goes over the old constructions and uses that to generate warnings. So you can think of it as in this, like, I don't know, any parser like a Sprima, except the checks and all the warnings are deeply embedded in the parser itself, which means, so this is done intentionally because a lot of people use JSON in the text editors. And in text editors, while you're typing your code, and you still want your warnings, but your code is not finished yet because you're still typing it, so it's not invalid. So parsers like a Sprima or you know, any other parser, um, they will just fail because this is not a valid JavaScript. If you don't close your function, it's not a valid JavaScript. JSON will try to parse as uh, much as possible before giving up and while parsing it will generate all the warnings so it's basically it is possible to use it like in real time while you're still coding and you can see all the reports so i actually like the new JSON website i specifically made it to illustrate this feature among others and like there if you make if you just pass half of your code it will still give you some um, useful warnings like, not everything, like, the end will be not useful because JSON will freak out in the end, like, oh, nothing is here, and I expect that, you know, closing parentheses or something. But before that, uh, the warnings will be actually pretty sane. So it is, to answer your question, it is a, uh, it is actually a top-down parser and Alexa that I wrote myself. So do you treat, because I know that some of the things that it checks for are more stylistic, like, you know, how many spaces you indent and stuff yeah. like that. So do you actually treat the white space as tokens as well, or do you... No, when I go in between, like when I have a token that represents the function keyword, and then I have a token that represents the um, this? open parentheses, I just look at the space in between them. So like, what is the uh, last character of the function keyword? What is the first character of the open parentheses? And 
if the difference between them is greater than one, then there's there are more than one one space there. So that's when you warn. I see. That makes sense. I dream about doing something like this for Ruby, but I don't think I'll ever get around to it. But uh, at the same time, I mean, these tools are so useful for for so many reasons as far as enforcing certain stylistic choices that you've made or, you know, just validating some of the code that you've written. And I'd, I'd love to see something like that in some of the other tools and things that I typically uh, use. Yeah. Yeah, these tools are also very uh, very useful with when you factor code. So mm-hmm. I can, like in my projects where I use JSCN a lot, um, everywhere, um, I can start refactoring and I can rename, I don't know, one variable, like global variable or module variable. And JSCN will immediately report me all the other instances where this variable is now undefined, which means I just simply need to rename it. So those are things that people in, uh, that work with the more, with the static, Type languages and the type languages in general, they have it. They like they treat it as something that any language should have, and they have them in IDE where you can just click and say refactor this function and rename this function. It will rename all its instances. But we don't have this in JavaScript, so we have to use static analysis to kind of get as close as possible to the same kind of useful toolsness. I don't think that's the word. Yeah. One other question I have that's related to that is, um, so JS Hint is something that you can pull down and add to your text editor or what have you. Do you see people using it like in uh, continuous integration to test their code before they push it out or things like that? Oh, yeah, a lot of people actually do that. So the main uses of JS Hint is either as a command line tool or as a plugin to your text editor or as a I don't know, pre-commit hook or some other continuous integration hook. And I think, yeah, I heard about a lot of cases where people use it. And we use JSON as, as a pre-commit hook at Discuss. And I think, yeah, I heard the other day that Facebook people use JSON for their stuff, at least some teams, also as a continuous integration. So you can actually uh, commit code that doesn't pass the JSON check. So the, the Grunt contrib team, they've... Uh... They actually have a default JSINT plugin mm-hmm. to make it so that you can have JSINT happening on your builds. So, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So you just use the Grunt Watcher and then... You could watch it so you could have live JSINT thing, or you could hook it up to your Grunt build system. Either way, like, it could work both ways, yeah. Yeah. For JSINT itself, the JSINT check, the JSINT checks its its own code on the NPM pretest, I think. So, and I have the Travis CI. Uh, set up. So basically, whenever I commit, it goes and uh, Travis does pre- npm pretest, npm test, and pretest runs JSON check and fails if there's anything wrong, and test mm-hmm. runs all the tests. So basically, I treat it as a part of my uh, test suite. That's awesome. We, uh, I know if you use Yeoman and you scaffold up a new project using Yeoman, it'll also generate you a, a pretty solid JSONRC file so that you you can just kind of start with a a great template for your team. How many lines of code are in JS Hint? Too many. <laughs> That's why I'm trying to simplify it. It still has a lot of JS linty things in in it. So, but it's I kind of I don't even know now. It used to be a one giant ass like really really big JavaScript file, just one. I split it in um, separate files, make them 
made them decoupled from each other, but it's still not a, not as good as I want it to be. And the, yeah, basically I want to simplify so that more contributors could write their patches and we're not intimidated by giant JSIN.js. So I had a couple of questions, if I could for a second. Sure. For, while you were talking, Anton, you talked about a book that you're writing. What's your book about? It's called Beautiful JavaScript. So it's a, another book in the beautiful, O'Reilly's Beautiful Asterisk series. So like, just like Beautiful Code, Beautiful Code, it will be um, a collection of chapters that are contributed by different prominent JavaScript figures. And every chapter answers one question. What is the most beautiful code in JavaScript that you ever written or read? But it doesn't mean that everyone will be like really excited about JavaScript and how, and talk only how they love JavaScript. I think some authors are writing about the problems they have with JavaScript and Basically, uh, the book is a chance for readers to like stand over the shoulder of people who make a lot, make their living writing JavaScript and see how they work, what they, what language features they use and they like, what they try to avoid and so on. Hmm. That's cool. So who's co-authoring that with you? Um, so every chapter, there will be uh, around like 10, 12 chapters and every chapter is written by different uh, people. Wow. And I don't know if I can see public. Well, I will be writing one chapter. And so Jacob, fat on Twitter, he's writing another chapter. And hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, Brett and Ike will write this chapter. And there are more people who I cannot really talk about. Cool. That's exciting, man. Yeah. Um, another question. So one, one setting I never saw until just now is what is when you set no true in your JSNFC, what does that do? What's it, what is, how does it treat that code different? Oh, so there are some options. I call them environment options. They are, they basically have predefined set of global variables so that if you turn an option, I think it's MDF, that warns about undefined variables, it will not, for example, let's say you have your code that's supposed to run in node environment and you use experts that, or module that experts and you turn on the undef. So JSON has absolutely no way to know whether module is a predefined global or right. you just forgot to define it. So node okay. true will has a list of all these predefined variables for node environment and it actually adds that to JSON. And also with node, node is kind of like an exceptional option because for example, for browser, it's just a browser option. It's just a list of global variables for node. It's not only a list of global variables, it also enables uh, a few um, options. For example, it allows you to put a uh, strict in the on the module level because by default JSON warns about putting strict in the module level and not inside the function. Since in the browser environment, if you put it in the, on the file on the module level and it will just leak into the globe scope, uh, global scope and then your third party libraries can break or third-party widgets or whatever is else is running on your website. Mm -hmm. There is no such problem in Node. So if you do Node true, it will not worry about that. Gotcha. Okay, that's cool. That's some cool. I didn't know the optioning existed. That's awesome. So I had one. I was interested in one more thing. Um, who I just wondered who are, who are the main influencers right now on JS Hint? I know obviously you. Um, do you have any other teammates that are you know big, big influencers um, on the project? So I have 
other people who were contributing a lot and they have commit access. And, but most of them kind of busy with their work and stuff. You know, like one guy who was contributing a lot, um, he, he started at Facebook and he kind of disappeared after that. So, but most changes right now are coming from contributors that solve their own problems. So Jason doesn't have one other person who just like works on it all the time. But we have a lot of people who solve their own little problems. And by the end, I, like I did a release and like, oh, I didn't write the majority of code this time. Or the last release, I didn't write anything. I was like, I just mm. merged 10 pull requests and it was enough for release. Mm. So yeah, um, I'm still the main maintainer and we have a core team that shows up from time to time, but most work are done by contributors who write one off patches. Cool. That's awesome. I didn't know that. That's cool to know. So I'm very excited how people, about the fact that people write patches for Jason because I often look at all the patches that are coming and all the new checks that are coming from contributors to JSN. And then I look to JSLand and because it's not very contributor friendly, people just don't contribute to it anymore. And in my mind, it's like it kind of proves the uh, open source, like the real open source model, model of software development. And it kind of validates the whole JSON project, project for me because it was initially the community driven tool. And I'm really happy that after two years, it still is community driven tool. That's cool. So one thing you mentioned that, um, you were kind of in the process of, and maybe I understood wrong of splitting out the formatting bits into one project and putting the, the safe bits, the safety pieces, the code safety and another pieces. What are your thoughts on how that's going to end up or what will, what will that look like? Um, so I'm not splitting out the formatic pieces into a separate project. I am removing them at all and I will let some other project to pick up if they want. So I was thinking about doing the formatting tool myself, but I don't really have time. So I will be just in the next ingestion three, which will be a non backwards compatible release. I will just remove formatting options. So okay. we're not worrying about vice press and stuff. And, but in the same release, I will also expose AST and probably Lexer. So if someone wants to write a plugin for, uh, JSON that does that, that like recreates the formatting options, they will be able to. And also I will look at the tools. Like there's a excellent tool that I, I'm still evaluating. Uh, I think it's called JSCS. Which is basically, it's like JSON for your f- formatting. I didn't know how I didn't find it before because it's way more configurable in terms of white space and how you like do your formatting than JSON and it works pretty well. So maybe I will just make a JSON plugin to use that tool uh, for people who still want to do that. Yeah. If somebody wanted to do that, let's say somebody got real fired up and wanted to go do that. One of our listeners, perhaps what's the best way for them to get in contact with you to do it? Probably GitHub or so we have, yeah, GitHub issues or our mailing list, which I really need to know mailing list for Google groups because I can't even find it anymore. Like they have this, their Ajax C interface where everything is a forum or something and I can't fucking find it anymore. But, um, mailing list or basically anything, uh, they can tweet at me, send me email or create a issue on GitHub. Because I'm not a, one of these people who like constantly busy and always complain about how much mail do they have. 
I have mail, but I reply to it. So yeah, any kind of communication where it, it puts your message in front of my face will work. Then I can walk a, or walk through you and like kind of mentor the bug <laughs> if someone is new to the JSON source code. People are actually, actually, I think a couple of contributors, they emailed me like, Hey, I want to write this patch, but your source code is sucks and complicated and I don't understand what's going on. So then I basically explained what I could about the code and then they made their patches and they work pretty well. So I think in order to really determine whether or not all of these opinions you've been sharing are valid, we need to know which editor do you use? <laughs> so <laughs> I, I actually, I don't use JSON inside of my editor. I'm very, very, I'd like to think of myself of conservative in terms of editors, but people think I'm weird. So for the longest time, I didn't use single cell editing because it really was pissing me off. Uh, like I couldn't find the one I like and I just decided not to use it. So then I switched to Sublime because I like to copy paste code from like the browser into my editor and my command line Vim was always like had problems with that. So I switched to Sublime and I was too lazy to figure out how to turn off syntax highlighting. So now I use syntax highlighting, but I really like don't pay attention to it. But I don't use any plugins with Sublime. Like I, and you don't I, use Emacs. I don't know. I do not. I used Emacs when I was in school and then I grew up. <laughs> <laughs> so, so somebody's trolling me. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I know I'm kind of, so if you go to JSON website and you see how it works there with the reports on your side, I'm kind of thinking about experimenting with writing my own editor based on code mirror, but I don't know. I don't have much time to do that, but it would be nice. So yeah, I don't really have preference. Like tomorrow, if there's something that I like better than Sublime, I'll just switch it in Monday since people have problems switching when they have a lot of plugins and a lot of setup. I don't do anything. I just use it as a text editor. So. I can switch to any editor at any time. I still use Veeam on my server. All right. Well, any other questions you guys have? I'm good. I really appreciate all the stuff he's, he's taught us about uh, JS Hint today. That's, it's been great. Yep. Now, people can also go to the JS Hint website and just dump JavaScript in there and have it run, right? Yep. Yeah. And actually, I'm going to post some statistics soon, like a page with statistics on how many... JS runs um, fail, how many uh, su- succeed, and what are like the most popular options that people use and stuff. Right now, I'm just using the Kinayo. Um, it's like a data aggregation service uh, to send the data from the website. And once I have enough, like a couple of months maybe, I will post statistics. And I think it should be fun to see how actual how people actually use JSN. Cool. Yep. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get into the picks. Aaron, do you want to start us off with the picks? Yeah, I'll uh, I'll start off. So, my first pick is is the Google Developer Group in Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic. They're having a conference this weekend, and I'm going to fly out there. It should be pretty cool. I'm excited to go down to the Dominican Republic and talk about Glass and and Chromecast and, and Angular and stuff. It'll be fun. Um, another pick is. Uh, Brian Ford wrote a, a drag and drop, a super, super simple and powerful drag and drop, um, directive for Angular. And it really, I think it's the best drag and drop implementation I've seen just because it doesn't give you a ton of overhead and it's really easy to customize and understand the code. So, um, I'll, I'll, 
we'll get a link to that on the site. Also, um, if you guys go out to the internet, I'm going to pick a video. It's called, uh, I mean, if you search for like Russian, Spanish, and bear, there's this guy who he's speaking, he's Russian, he's speaking Spanish to the camera, and he's, he's, he's trained his bear in, in, in Spanish as well. And the bear can like tra play trumpet and stuff. It's, it's pretty exciting. So I'm going to, I'm going to use that as a pick. And also I installed Mavericks this week and, uh, so far it's, it's pretty nice. Uh, the, the few upgrades that they put on it. So yeah, those are my picks. Awesome. AJ, what are your picks? I'm going to start off with the stuff that's most related. I really like the new install section on the JS Hint website. I don't think that was always there, or if it was, I didn't notice it. I also have a blog article plus video that I must have done at like 3 in the morning because my voice is like super soft and I'm speaking really slow. But I show how you can install JS Hint in Sublime and also in Vim. So all the real editors are covered there. And... <laughs> uh also, jsonlint.com is extremely helpful for me. Like, all the time I want to throw crap up and have it reformatted or just make sure that it's it's valid JSON or find out where my error is in my config file or something like that. And I use jsonlint a lot. I'll also pick json2yaml.com because sometimes you want to go from JSON to YAML or YAML to JSON. And so that can be useful. And most importantly, I think... Who owns JSONTheAML.com? Uh, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm also going to pick Stuart Edge and Can't Stop, Won't Stop. Because they're both awesome. Can't Stop, Won't Stop, I picked before with Lindsey Sterling. They're uh, kind of like ska rap. I don't know how to explain it. It's clean, too, which is nice. And then Stuart Edge is this magician, and uh, he did a video where Can't Stop, Won't Stop did the background music, where I, I think this is the one where he uh, he gets girls to kiss him by asking them if they would kiss a guy that wore a pink shirt, and he's wearing some other color shirt, and then he, after they, you know, he convinces them that kissing a guy wearing a pink shirt is a good idea, he turns around and, like, shakes his jacket and turns back around and now he's wearing a pink shirt. So it's kind of cool. Okay. Amusing. All right. Well, I guess it's my turn. I've been playing around a little bit more with Chef, um, and I think I picked it on the show before, so I'm just going to uh, briefly mention it. it. It's pretty cool. I, I've had another insane week, and I just don't have a lot of picks to pick. I am reading a book that I'm really enjoying, and that is Thou Shalt Prosper by Rabbi Daniel Lappin. And he talks about all of the principles that have made Jewish uh, people wealthy. And so it's kind of their mindset and the way that they view money and work. And it is really, really good. I, I find it somewhat interesting that, uh, you know, even people who are culturally brought up that way, but don't necessarily follow all of the religious things that they do as Jews tend to have this mindset and are able to succeed that way. So um, I'm going to pick that book as well. Anton, what are your picks? So today in the morning, I found out about this um, service or website or whatever it is. Yeah, service um, called Climate, which claims it's an automated code review. It's a, like quality and security analysis for Ruby on Rails and JavaScript. And I mean, I saw it because they use JSON, but like the more I look at their tour, it looks like it's a pretty good service to just automatically have data and statistics about your code and 
yeah, and like make make it actionable. So and it's also free for open source projects, which is pretty sweet. So mm. this is from today in the morning, and I also yeah, the, fo- the folks at Code Climate are awesome. They they sponsored uh, Ruby Rogues for a month, and uh, Brian Helmkamp's been on the show a couple of times. Yeah, and I was really excited because if I was to do a startup today, I would do something like Code Climate. But now that it, it exists, I can continue getting paid by Mozilla to write open source software, which works <laughs> pretty fine for me. So yeah, another thing is Cloud9 here. So Cloud9 is, uh, pro- people probably know that, it's like an IDE where you get your uh, VM virtual machine and you can write code right in there. And it has a lot of cool tools, but I've seen a sneak peek of like their new version and it's amazing. So you should listen closely to what they're about to announce. And the thing they do with JSN and like with their static analysis on top of JSN is really, really, really good. Hmm. So that would be my two picks. Cool. Hey, Charles, can I do one more pick? Yeah, go ahead. Ender's Game comes out next week. Everyone go watch it. It's gonna be it's gonna be crazy. Yeah, that that book's been around forever, and I love yeah. it. And I'm so excited to go see the movie. I don't know. I'm just about to finish it again, so I'm excited. That is one of my favorite books. I've never read it twice, but um, I like the Speak for the Dead series that follows after the original book. Like, the original series, I think it's really good. The other series, the Bean series, I'm not, like, super a fan of. Loved both of them. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to mention our silver sponsor, and that's uh, Reg Braithwaite's uh, JavaScript Allongé. So uh, go check that out. You can also find an episode that we did with him about that book. Um and uh, we have a banner ad on the website if you, if you want to go get it. So go do that. And uh, thanks for coming, Anton. Really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks. Yep. It was really, real nice chat. All right. Well, we'll wrap this up. We'll catch you all next week.